Doug Williamson is an AQHA professional horseman. He's trained 42 AQHA champions. He's won the Snaffle Bit Futurity twice. It's probably because, as a young man, he was a real cowboy. One time, I, uh, for the Markham Cattle Company, I'm 23 years old. We gathered 2,500 head of steers that's three and four years old. They weighed 1190 across the scales. We drove them 130 miles to Mud Flat all the way to Vail, Oregon, and it took five hours for the drag to finally get into the sale yard. With 100 head of saddle horses, a cook wagon, and 14, jo- 14 guys. And the youngest guy, I was 23, and I was the manager of the, of the ranch at that time. And the youngest guy was 64, besides me. <laughs> Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Each week we bring you a show that helps you build a better relationship with your horse. We talk to many different horse people and we share our horsemanship journey with you. On this week's show, we revisit an interview I did with Doug Williamson in April of 2015. Yes, I go back and listen to my own old podcast and this one was really quite a bit of fun. (laughs) Before we get to the interview... Let's talk a little bit about what we've been doing with our horses, Renee. Okay, John. A couple of weeks ago, we did a, a, a trailer trip out of town to an area called Hanson Dam. It's south of us, outside of, what, Burbank, Glendale? Pasadena. Southern California. <laughs> right off the 210 freeway. Yeah. It's a real big, pretty place. Well, parts of it are pretty. Some of it's pretty deserty. But we met up with an ETI group there for a trail ride, and it was a lot of fun. It's always fun riding in a group, and that ETI group, uh, that was that's 138, right? I believe so, yes. They are. They're a real friendly group. It was hot that day, so there weren't very many of us riders. Probably seven or eight, do you I, think? I think total, yeah. yeah. The nice thing about it is Hanson Dam has a couple of different areas you can ride in, and some of it is has quite a canopy with trees running over it. And that made a lot of nice shade on a hot day. It did. I was riding my quarter horse mare, Jesse, and usually we've kind of gotten in the habit of leading the trail rides, but we didn't know where we were going. Yeah, you, you two are always the leaders when we're here around home. And I've likely been doing that way too much because she really wanted to be out in front, which made sense to her, but made absolutely no sense to me since we didn't know where we were going. <laughs> so she was crowding the number two rider, and uh, we had to figure out a way to, and she wasn't acting up. She just wanted to be in, at the front of the line. We kind of came up with a, an innovative way to, <laughs> to train on the trail. With I don't think anybody even noticed we were doing it. I don't think they did. So my quarter horse, Dusty, who is affectionately called the tank, <laughs> became the horse in front of John <laughs> and Jesse. <laughs> and every time Jesse tried to get past Dusty's hip, I picked up on the opposite rein that her neck was on and just moved her over to the other side. So she had to kind of slow down, get behind Dusty, and then try to creep up on the other side. Then, oh, sort of like checking in camp drafting? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So we would we just moved from one side to the other. Dusty took it very well. He didn't care a bit. <laughs> He, and it was good for him because he's usually at the very end of the line. He's also affectionately called the drag rider. <laughs> <laughs> he had Jesse kind of pushing him up. And, and, and he uh, had to keep up. And he had to keep up. Yeah. And then Jesse, it took her about 20 minutes before she realized what I was doing. And she said, you know what? It's too hot for this nonsense. 
<laughs> even in the water and the shade. <laughs> we had a really fun time, and we would recommend that you find a riding group that you can have a group ride on. It's there. Sometimes it takes you a, a couple of groups. You have to go through a couple of groups to find <laughs> like-minded people who ride in the style that you're riding. But it's really good for you, and it's good for your horse. It was. I mean, we had we had a pretty diverse group, a lot of splashing around in the water, and some of the horses weren't used to that. You just get exposed to a lot of different activities with different people riding. And in different areas, too. Right, right. And that's what we've been doing with our horse. We'd like to hear what you're doing with your horse. If you're uh, doing something innovative or something fun or just something nonsensical, drop us a line. You can email me at john at woepodcast.com. And now let's get to the interview with Doug Williamson. I talked to Doug in April of 2015. I got to watch him train a couple of horses in his arena. And then we went into his office with the walls were lined with all these newspaper headlines and, and programs with, uh, and photographs of all the horses that he's, that he's done great on. And uh, he was just a warm and open individual. We uh, talked about some training tips that he, he could suggest for different riders. Here's Doug Williamson on the Woe Podcast. He's got a little school that has 500 kids in it total and a high school. That's where I was born and raised, right there. In what, what year were you born? In 1942. So you've been at this business quite a long time. You're a... I'm a very lucky guy to be able to do what I've done all my life, and, and it's always been with cows. My, I guess I start off with a story. I, yeah, I love I, that. I, had a, I was a jockey first, and this is a cute little story. Well, when I was nine, I rode a couple races, and then when I was 10, I started riding racehorses. Uh, on the major tracks in Idaho and Oregon. Get out of here. And really? So, yeah, they have my fo- they would throw my folks in jail, I suppose, today if you if they if they let them do that. So at ten, I had a pretty good year, just on this during the summer, and then the summer of my ten year old year, I had a mare called Revelletta that no none of the jockeys would ride her because they scared scared of her that she'd run through the fence with them. And I have a little Indian trick that I put on my horses that that I can choke them down even with a snaffle bit like that's what we run them in and uh, I think I can get her done. So I told the old boy, I says I would, for twice what you for twice the jock fee and 20% of what she wins, I'm going to ride that mare. He says, okay kid. So my dad put me up on her and I won the race and I'm choking her down, getting her ready, because she would run through the rail and go to the barn with you. So that's what, that's what would happen. Right. So I was choking her down, and another horse went across in front of me, and she stepped in his hind legs, and I, I was in a five-horse pileup. Oh, my. Well, I was in the hospital for 38 days. It didn't break anything. It just took my back. My toes were sticking in the air when they finally dug, dug me out of the ground, and my belly was flat on the ground, so it just twisted me up <laughs> And I've always had a bad back ever since. But anyway, my mother, she come to the hospital one day, and she had really serious. And I said, what's, what's up? She says, well, I've made a decision about your jockey career. I says, okay. I, he says, uh, she said, you can't ride anymore till you're 12. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to lay off a year. A jockey career. You got on two years probation. I did. <laughs> About a year and a half. And so the next year, I was contracted to ride for a guy called Cully Gardner. 
and he was a racehorse man, and he had a horse called Nojo, who was a half-brother to Gobango. I rode that horse 18 times in two years and never got outrun. Oh, my God. I went, I made $25,000 as, as a 12-year-old kid. Oh, wow. Riding racehorses. I'd still be riding racehorses if, if I had. And then I grew seven inches in one year. And that kind of messed my jockey career up. But So then I went to jumping because I could ride in English that easy. So Were those quarter horse races? No, they're thoroughbreds. He had thoroughbreds. My dad had quarter horses. My dad had quarter horses, and, and I rode quarter horses for him and thoroughbreds for the color gardener. Yeah. Do you remember what it felt like getting on that horse the first time you, you raced, how fast that went? Well, the, the one quarter horse that my dad had was a Hancock horse. He was by Skipper Joe Mink, by Joe Hancock. He could blow out of that starting gate so hard I couldn't, ride, I couldn't hold myself on him. So I said, I got to have a, a belt or something around his neck to hang on to. When that, when that gate latch opened up, I would be laying down and tugging on this. I'd try to squeeze myself down on his neck, and he would stand me straight up. And I'd look over, and I couldn't see anybody on both sides of me. <laughs> oh, wow. For 220 to 330, he could outrun any of them. Wow. Yeah. That was a, that was a fun part of my life was being a jockey. I bet. And, and just the experience you must have gotten from riding so many different horses with so oh, many yeah. different yeah. horses. Well, I got to where I was, I was good. I got to be really good at it. But when I was, then when I was 13 and 14, well, when I was 14, I grew seven inches in one year. Wow. Did that put an end to your jockey career? Pretty much. They still wanted me to ride them, and I weighed 125 pounds. It was, it was a kind of a tough deal for me because I really liked to ride them. But it got to be to where you had to weigh, excuse me, you had to weigh 120 to be able to get on most all the horses. Uh-huh. You know, you had to weigh that much. Right. So when I was 12 that year that I rode, I told my mama, riding 10 head of races, I had to pack all this lead weight on me because I only weighed 90. <laughs> she finally fixed me a blanket with pockets in it that I could put lead weight in. And the horse would pack it, but I didn't have to. There you go. Yeah, so that worked out pretty good. Because I imagine for a 12-year-old carrying all that extra 30 pounds. It wasn't very much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what happened with me there. So And, and then I understand that uh, that you kind of had to take over the family ranch. I, yeah, I did uh, when I was 14. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, I ended up... Uh, I ended up getting a horse that a guy wanted me to ride out of the desert. I, I was taking care of 1,500 head of mother cows for my dad. And, you know, he was helping me, too. I mean, we was all uh, just a family. We didn't hardly have any money at all. But we we finally got this ranch that we bought and paid more money than we were supposed to. And we gave way too much money for the cows. And so we had to do all the work ourselves. We didn't have any money for help. I finally got this horse to train for, and I, was, and I got $350 to train him for a month, wow. every month. He says, uh, he's plumb gentle, you don't have to worry about it. But my dad had a little sneaking hunch he might not have been all that gentle. So he decided he better check him out for me. Which, so, it just, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. you're 14 years old yep. and you're taking in horses to train, is yep. that right? Oh, yep. that's pretty cool right there. <laughs> that's pretty good right there. <laughs> so, he knew I it just needed miles, and I had... We run cattle in a 200-mile radius with no fences. Wow. I've gotten cattle 200 miles from the house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
and they could have went further than that, but that's how far one year and got on me one time. But anyway, so I'm headed for school that morning, and I told my dad, I said, don't be riding that horse now. He's mine. That's not 350 is going to be mine. So he says, uh, okay. Well, he just went right out as soon as I left on the school bus to go to town to school. He got on him and flipped over backwards with him and laid his right foot in his lap. Oh, my. Tore his leg from him. Oh, gosh. So they couldn't, back in those days, just tore all the tendons really bad. Right. So they just tied him in a square knot and said, this is as good as it's going to get. Well, he wasn't going for that. He sat on a desk like we're sitting here and had a bucket of rocks, and he would work his leg back. In about four or five years, he finally got to where he could walk on it. Wow. Yeah. But you were in charge of the ranch during I that time. I was the whole ranch. I run. I, I managed 150 acres of alfalfa and corn, and 1,500 head of cows. Wow. Did I, you have brother I, and sister? I missed. Oh yeah, but they were all too young. Oh, so you're the oldest. I'm the oldest, and so we just. It was a job we had to do. We just did it. And yeah. you still had school to go to, right? I missed three months of school every year, and I had a gorgeous lady later. She was really a little heavy set lady. But a really pretty lady, and long hair and stuff, and for some reason she liked me. And I missed three months of school every year, plus it took me six months to do all the buckaroon and the hay and everything. I, I've had a hardship driver's license since I was 14. <laughs> wow. I never even had to take a test. They just give me the test. I still have it. I mean, it's the same license I got today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, whenever I got back to, to town, anytime I got back to the ranch, she would drive out there with her folks, would drive her out there, and she would tutor me and got me passed in school. Yeah. Now, did you learn most of your horsemanship knowledge from your dad or by practical experience? A little, my dad was a good hand, really good hand, and he knew horses pretty well. But in all reality, before we bought this ranch, he was a car salesman. He, he sold more cars than anybody in the state of Idaho. Is that right? Yeah, he's got, had a, he has a big plaque that he did that one year. And so, uh, but he always wanted to be a rancher and raised around the ranch ranching community all his life. Uh-huh. But uh, my great-great-grandmother, I, I knew her, and she drove all the way in an oxen from Missouri to Weezer, Idaho. Wow. Now, that had to be a tough old girl right that, there. Yeah, I really did, <laughs> yes. And so uh, I got the... I got to meet her, and uh, and she brought an accordion, you know, one of those pump accordions? Right, right. She brought that thing all <laughs> the way from Missouri. I, I just couldn't. That, that's the toughest I ever heard of, you know. They all think I'm tough. I'm not even close to her. <laughs> yeah. So you got some you got some pretty on-the-job experience, but then you yep. also had your dad helping you. Yeah, and I, I got to where I could really learn how to read a cow because that's all I did all day long is, right. is have to drive cattle, and they're all... And those cattle back in those days was really wild. In fact, I had one heifer that I caught, and she was two years old and didn't have a brand on her, so I put my brand on her, and she ran her first two calves to death. (laughs) 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 That's that's how wild she was. She saw you come, and she would run and just run her calves till they couldn't go no more. Yeah. And how many horses did you have at that time? We ran 100 head of saddle horses all the time. Is that right? Wow. Because they had... You would ride 40 to 60 miles every day, and you wouldn't get to ride him again for another 30 days just for him to recuperate. Right. Yeah. I don't think anybody realizes that. That's an that's amazing amount of uh, miles to be putting on a horse. Yeah. So you, then you had to, if you had that many horses, you had to, could have had to not only be good at reading a cow, you had to be good at reading a horse, too. Oh, yeah. I, I'm the one that started all of them, yeah. 
And uh, we always had that many horses in the cabbie all the time. And then uh, it was not very long after that I started working for a Markham Cattle Company. And they run 100 head of saddle horses, too. And they did like the old style deal. They roped everything they wanted to catch. Right. And we always had a bell mare. We'd run them out. We only kept one horse in the krill. And we didn't feed him because we just used him to go wrangle. And then he got to eat the rest of the day with the, with the herd. And so uh, after I left my dad's place, I went there. And uh, he says, uh, I said, why don't you teach these horses how to catch? Oh, they, you can't catch them. You can't teach them how to catch. <laughs> and they was like straight thoroughbred horses there. There was government remount thoroughbred studs that was put in that country. Uh-huh. And by the time I got there 50 years later, these are the prettiest thoroughbred horses you ever saw. Really? And, I, well, I've caught, five, I've caught five deer on them. I won the suicide race twice on those horses. Yeah. What's the suicide race? It's a, in Vail, Oregon. There's a big mountain. And you run off of it two miles across the Mount Hill River into the arena. As fast as you can go, and the first one in wins five hundred dollars. That's a, hey, that's a pretty wild ride, there, Doug. It, it was a pretty wild ride, and I have a friend of mine that we that helped me run horses a lot. The BLM made us run wild horses all the time, right? Because they was going to cut our permits. They wouldn't let us run cattle out there unless we got rid of the horses. Oh yeah. So we run horses all the time, and at that time, they was only worth three to five cents a pound. He was. He was minded pretty well one year, and I says, you're going to ride the suicide races? Well, if you are, I'm going to. Well, he's five years older than me, but he would help me on the ranch from time to time while my dad was getting healed up. And uh, he and I were both in there. Well, when we first started, when you first start this suicide race, you go up over a little ledge like this and then start down. And then there was a 14 or 15-foot drop of shale, straight, just solid rock, like that wall right there. And then it just fell off from there. The dirt fell off from there. And there's only a gap about the size of this desk that you one horse could get through at a time. So the first guy that got to the gap first usually won. Well, I'm, I got a pretty good horse, so I know I'm going to get to the gap first. And I've matched race a little, so I know how to get going. And I would get through the, through the gap first. And I saw this blur on the right side of me, and I looked over there, and he just moved over and jumped off this 15-foot cliff and oh, lit wow. right beside of me. Oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds like man from Snowy River. Exactly. Stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Same thing. So they don't have nothing on us. <laughs> but uh, when we was in the Waiheese, you know, there was a lot of places like that. Right. Snowy River haven't got anything on us. Well, we, we've done it all. So I love that. Yeah. And so there was 12 or 13 people in the suicide race, and when, when they saw both of us land, he lit right beside me, and we're head and head, we're neck and neck going to the deal. They just pulled up and walked. They stopped. <laughs> they just pulled up and walked. They said, we can't run them crazy guys. Oh, yeah, geez. so it was, it was pretty fun, but it's, uh, it's been a life that, you know, that you, you dream of. One time, I, uh, for the Markham Cattle Company, I'm 23 years old. We gathered 2,500 head of steers that's three and four years old. They weighed 1,190 across the scales. Wow. We drove them 130 miles to Mud Flat all the way to Vail, Oregon, and it took five hours for the drag to finally get into the sale yard. Wow. With 100 head of saddle horses, a cook wagon, and 14, jo- 14 guys. And the youngest guy, I was 23. 
and I was the manager of the, of the ranch at that time. And the youngest guy was 64, besides me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So all the old buckaroos around the area, they just all come to help me drive these, you know, from the Crowley and from the Reinhardt Ranch and all the big ranches. So they said, well, we'll help you. So they came to town with me. That was just some great camaraderie. <laughs> did those guys know, and I'm sure they knew a bunch about horses, they passed that oh, stuff along? Or, oh, yeah. Or did they tell you stories? No, no, they actually, <laughs> no, those, some of those guys is really good hands. Yeah, they was really good hands. So, so that's been fun. Yeah, I, I've just, uh, nobody's ever got to do that ever again. I yeah. bet not, no. no. And no one will ever get to do it again. Probably not. They might have, they got big drives in Texas, you know, and stuff, but but they just move from one area to another, more or less, with, with a cook wagon and, and saddle horses and all that. But but anyway, these 100-head horses that the Markham Cattle Company had, they was going to be, they hadn't, they left for about three or four months. And they're just me by myself there. And I was taking care of their cattle, and, which they run 10,000 head of cattle. Oh. So, but I knew they, they run with the same country as my dad did. So I, I knew all, I was actually taking care of my dad's a little, and then uh-huh. for the ranch too. For it was all over, I had all 100 head of horses, whip broke, and they would all stand there and turn around and face you. Is and you could right? catch any one of them. I could catch any one of them. But the old, <laughs> they wouldn't let nobody else catch them. But I could, if you want a horse to catch, I'll catch it for you. And I, they couldn't believe that I had 100 head of horses. Now, how did you, can you give us a little short synopsis on how you got Well, what I did is I had a 40-foot round curl, 80-foot round curl, and then a big curl. And I put one in a 40-foot round curl till I got him broke to right. turn around and let me face, right. and face me. And then I would put two or three in the 80-footer after I did that, and it just I just did that every day. Four or five of them at a time, I'd get four or five broke really good, and then I'd put them and get another one, and that's how I, how I did that, Yep. I had really good curls. Wow. Because yeah. we ran wild horses in them. They were seven and eight foot tall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they couldn't get away from me. Now, and you've pretty much done it all. You've done roping. You've done... I was in the RCA roping kids for 10 mm-hmm. years. And you went to you went into the service? You yeah. spent some time in the service? Yeah. What, were... I, I was in the guards, National Guards. Uh-huh. And, and on the weekends, I would... Uh, on one weekend a month, I would do that, and then... Uh, and the rest of the, and I had a really good job at that time that they would allow me to do that and rodeo and if I had my job done if I was taking right. care of the, the I run a feedlot for seven years for a killer feedlot and I was the foreman and manager of that for seven years yeah. wow. that was an experience they hired two veterinaries and paid them 40000 a year to teach me everything there was to do to a cow is that right Pull cesareans, water bellies, every vaccine that you can imagine to have to give to them. When I first went there, they didn't have a, a chute. It was just warming up kids, you know. Uh-huh. And the Alvord Ranch and the White Horse Ranch was part owners at that time. And some of those calves didn't weigh 300 pounds when they come to the feedlot. They was nearly starved to death, I think. They, they run too many cattle in, in that area yeah. compared to what it's supposed to be. So the old boy says, uh, well, can you rope? And I says, yeah, I can rope a little bit. I wore out three horses a day, <laughs> catching sick cattle and doctoring them. Is that right? 
they finally put a chute in and it made a, a good place for me, a, a hospital that I could actually doctor them with a chute and everything. But, uh-huh. but uh, when I first went through that, it was amazing. Yeah, we roped all day long. I was so tired of roping that, that night, I couldn't hardly pick up my arm. But, <laughs> but uh, when, I, when I first went there, they had a 6% death loss. And when I left there, there was a half a percent. Wow. But I rode the pins myself, and I doctored all the cattle myself. And so you've always been kind of a hands-on guy, too, then. Oh, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> that probably came from running your own ranch, too, you know. I, the- I would imagine. You know, I just, I got that. I got that kind of stuff going on in me that I still have it. I, I, it's hard to believe the kids today that they don't take over more. You know, they just won't work unless you tell them every step to take. All the stuff to do. Huh? Yeah. But they don't know either, though. They haven't had much experience. You know, it's kind of hard to find ex- experience is, is where it's all at. If you, yeah, right. If you, if you can get it, you know, at a price, you know. But the price I had to pay was the fact that I couldn't go to school very well. Right. But I passed with, with uh, I passed, so it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a, and back to the school part, as a freshman, I weighed 90 pounds, right? And that was still my jockey career part. Right. And, but from my sophomore year to my junior year, I grew seven inches and I got a little heavier. But I, I'm the only one yet that has earned a letter every year. I was a state champion wrestler for four years in a row. Is that right? Yeah. I wrestled myself. That's a pretty tough sport. You got to be, yeah. That's. I imagine you're pretty quick as a cat. I was. I was at one time. I was. I'm not anymore. <laughs> so you've won the snaffle snaffle bit futurity twice. Twice, then. yes, sir. And yeah. one of those times, I was reading about it. One of those times was on uh, Mr. San Olin. Yep. Yeah. And and that was while you were living in Bakersfield. So you moved to Bakersfield for, from. Uh, actually, it was when I was at the Tejon Ranch. So you worked for the Tejone Ranch, which is just for three south of years. I did. Uh, I I made that. I built that whole facility. Did you? Yeah. They didn't have a horse facility up there, and I put them in the horse business. Bought them twenty head of mares, four studs, and we was going to go to town, and that lasted three years. And they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. And that beautiful place is up there yet today. Now the story I heard was that your dad was in Texas, and he saw that stallion. Yeah. Yeah. He. Uh, you know, I sent him to go help buy them studs because nobody, I don't think in history, has ever bought 20 head of studs and they was all, more, they was all famous horses. And my dad could do that. So he's at, the, he's at the King Ranch and they bought three head of horses that, that uh, they thought was good enough. And my dad said, there's a little fuzzy black one here that I recommend really well, but they don't, like, they don't want him. And I said, well, hell, let's just buy him ourselves. So when that happened, they decided they'd buy him. Well, he's the only one that amounted to with a darn. <laughs> <laughs> so Tahone actually bought that horse? Yeah, then? they actually uh, ended up buying him. And then he's, and we still have him here at the ranch. He's 26 years old this year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that fascinated me about that story was that, one, your dad was still with you. So he was still helping you out at that, at oh, that yeah. time. Oh, yeah. And then, you guys have been so good at picking out uh, good horses. It, is there something particular you look for when you're when you're choosing a horse like that? What do you what's what, your eye on? One of the things that that I really have to have in all my horses, and I could show it to you, but there's a muscle in their neck right in front of their shoulders. And if they don't have that, they won't produce better than they are or sire better than themselves. 
and they can't move that front end around good enough, and they can't be quick. So mm-hmm. most horses have an indention there. Some of the best horses I had had a muscle bigger than the crown in my hand. Is that right? In front of that shoulder. You couldn't sweat it off. You couldn't work it off. You, it's good, it was there. And my dad and I found out back when, shoot, 50 years ago that, you know, if they got that muscle in their neck, they're a lot better horses. They could break and run out of the starting gate faster, you know, as race horses. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I got to thinking, God, every one of them good horses have that muscle in their neck. So... Anymore, that's the horses I look for. If they don't have it, they probably don't, they won't stick around here long. And can it, will they pass that along pretty they consistently? Will. They will. If the mother and the, and the daddy's both got it, they uh-huh. will, for sure. But so, some of them just don't have it. And other than the low hocks and the deep in the heart and the short back and the long sloping shoulder and the, and, the, and the throat latch being so they can bend their head really well, like that little filly did out there, you right. know, they all have to have that. But the most important thing is that muscle in their neck. Muscle. Oh. It's amazing. But they just that's just the way it is. That that horse has it, that horse has it, and that horse has it. <laughs> All those are your champions, right? Yeah. There. That mare belongs to my little wife and uh she's the only horse that won the Hackamore two years in a row. Wow. Ever. 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 Wow. I mean a lot of guys have won the Hackamore twice. Right. They haven't on the same horse. I did it on the same horse. That's awesome. Yeah, because you can only do it as a four and a five year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get I, two chances. That's it, huh? Yeah, and I beat him bad both times. Yeah, and that that horse is he's right on, and he's he was really a good horse. I won the world's richest bridle horse contest on him. So I've had some awful good horses. Yeah. And and what about temperament? Do you look at that at all, or? Oh yeah, they can't be hot anymore because boy, today is so tough. We used to take a hot, I used to take a pretty hot horse. In fact, uh, I'm trying to look here. I, I've, I've got a picture over in that. But uh, she was a really hot horse, but not very, everybody that thought they knew how to ride, I'd put, a, put, a, put them on her and she'd be running around the pen going 100 miles an hour. She couldn't stand you riding her fast with your lower body. And uh, she is a, she was a great horse, but I'm the only one who could ride her. Because I ride like nobody. I want to ride like nobody's on top of them. Right. That's right. what I want to do. So and You can tell. I've watched you ride several times, and yeah. it's like you and the horse are just one. You're just one, one unit. One unit. I hope, I, that's what I work at. And and I, I don't know that I still do it as good as I used to, but my horses are they're happy by doing it that way. See, I don't pick on them unless they do something bad, and then I, I only use my feet to scold them with. I don't make them, I don't make them go with my feet. And so those are kind of things that are really important in my training deal. Yeah. And uh, this might be a little bit off topic, but as I was doing some research before talking to you, I ran across another Bakersfield named Greg Ward. Yeah. Did you know him? Oh, I knew him really well. I, when he had cancer, he won. He won the fraternity when he was. He, he, I had to help him on his horse. Is that right? Yeah. Now, he was so weak. He had it was a. A fairly amazing horseman himself. He was. He was. Yeah. And it's amazing how now he did everything the same kind of thing that I do. Only he said it different, you know. But in all reality, it was the same way of training your horse. And he loved his horses really well, just like I do. Yeah. Yeah. He he really appreciated a good horse. 
And you guys were kind of setting some some trends for the Central Valley here. You guys were oh, yeah. making a name for yep. for this area. For this area, you know. It's kind of funny. I when I when the Tahoe Ranch wanted to hire me to put them in the horse business, I was excited about coming to California. Cause there's supposed to be some really good hands here. Well I want to learn some more. So I came to California and and Bob Avila, which is a dear friend of mine, and he comes from Oregon, mm-hmm. me too, also. And he's just up the road here in Fresno, yeah. right? Well, no, he's in uh, Temecula. In Temecula, okay. So uh, when I came here, he and I have competed against each other for 30 years, 40 years. Now 50 now, Matt, maybe. And we we trained Western riding horses and every kind of horse that there was. I mean, we had to do it all. Because we made AQHA champions, they had to have so many points in the halter. They had to have so many points in the in the reining, and then they had to have a cow event, whether it would be roping or calf roping or some kind of or or working cow horse or cutting. So I've made forty two AQHA champions in my life, and that's amazing, really. That is incredible. There's another guy that did, that made forty five. Yeah. That's that's the guy that's number one is forty five and yeah. you've got forty two. Yeah, and I wasn't even trying to do it. I just I just knew that that's how many I had made. So anyway, Bobby Evelyn and I are, you know, we're we know how to change leads really well and we know how to do it. And I can't I can't wait to get to California to learn some more. Right. Well, I get to California and there wasn't nobody knew how to change leads. Of all the good horsemen in this country, Greg Ward was this. this Bad as all of them. He didn't know either. He just kicked him over and went the other way. And I says, hey, Bobby, isn't this something? So the best hands in the world are here, and they don't know how to change leads. It's hard for me to believe. <laughs> but they knew how to do all, all other stuff. But uh-huh. the changing leads wasn't one of their priorities. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think your, isn't your secret of changing leads is make sure that horse changes in the back first? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. You gotta change directions, uh, leads in the back before you change directions in front. And if you do that, he'll absolutely have to change in the front. If you change the leads behind the next stride, he has to be in front. Right. But he, if you change directions in front and he changes in the front, he doesn't necessarily have to change, change behind. Yeah. The secret is, is my circles in competition-wise is they're D, they look like a D. They're round and around, but when you come across the center and you change leads, it's in a straight line, straight line all the way. So in other words, it's a D on both. It's a D in the middle. It's a straight line. Right. And, and so my circles actually look like a D because I don't want to go what Bobby Ingersoll would say. I'm going to I'm going down Route 66. Well, <laughs> and that's that's the way they their their circles was from that point of the uh, one point of the eight and then. Clear across the arena was another point. So it wouldn't be a straight, it would be kind of a straight line, but it would be not, the circles would be all block, right? Right, right. So, and that's the way he changed leads, you know, back in the day. I said, that looks like you're going down Route 66. <laughs> well, that's the way I got to do it. So, yeah. And it's a timing thing, too. You have to wait till the... Well, the, the front feet hit the ground. When the front feet hit the ground, the back end's coming up to the next stride, right? So you just move it over. And he's changed leads. It's pretty simple, really. So that it, that's that's. <laughs> but funny. timing is everything, right? Because I read that, and I'm out there practicing, and I'm trying to go. Okay, when are my when are my horses' back feet off the ground? Well, when I don't have fr- to worry about the back feet if I if I if know the front. Know, the, 
and you can only hear the front feet hit the ground. Right. When you when you hear your horse, you'll only hear this, the front end. You'll never hear the back end going. So when you hear the front feet go like this, one, two, change. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty easy, really, if you know how to do it. But I guess timing is everything. Everybody says, oh. There's nobody got timing like you do. <laughs> but I got two-year-olds out here that I'm riding right now, and I thought, well, I'll see how catty they are, you know. And the front feet hit the ground. I'll just neck right them a little like they just change legs and go the other way. Wow. Yeah. And they don't even know how to change legs. But if they're athletes, they'll just automatically do it anyway. But like that little horse right there, Doc Sula, the third pitcher down right there, mm -hmm. that's the horse that I got 300 for. He wasn't a great horse, but it, but when he was a two-year-old, he would just change leads. I just had to neck rein him and go the other way. He'd be fine, right? One day I decided, you know, I need to put the Western riding lead change on him in case I need to. Right. Because he might decide he didn't want to change that day for some reason, you know. And I didn't think he would ever do that, but I'm just jogging around, side-passing him here and side-passing him. He's fine with that. So I go to lope him off, and I pick up the bridle reins, and... When the front feet hit the ground, I move his butt over. He don't change. So I stop him and side pass him. Okay, now listen. This is what you got to do. You got to move your butt over and stay in a straight line so you can change leads. So we did that, and pretty soon he come around the corner. And he got frustrated. He come across the corner. I picked his brother reins and pressed him over, and he just lit on. <laughs> he lit right on his belly with his legs underneath of him and his hocks underneath him. Just <laughs> flat. Sit down like and a camel. And he wasn't mad. He just was confused. He didn't know what you wanted from him. I made him get right up. And I'm thinking, yeah, I can see you're not mad, but I'm I'm going to just jog you around here. So I'm going to jog him around, push him over with my feet. And he would leg eight all over the place at the truck. The next day, I bring him out, thinking I'm going to have to have a little problem. He changed legs like a ballet dancer every time. Is that right? Never had to worry about it again. <laughs> <laughs> he thought about it all night, I guess. And and the next morning, I'll open around, pick up the bridle reins, push him over, and he just changes it. And I can change him every other stride from then on. Wow. <laughs> so it's just a, as a horse trainer, everybody would have gotten to fight that horse. It might have ruined him. And I was smart enough to feel his... Mm, Frustration, frustration, and not yeah, and answer. not knowing what the heck I'm wanting him to do. And when I finished up by just side passing him around and side passing him up and down the fence and just kind of doing that at a slow, moderate pace, then the next day, he's, oh, I got it. Yeah, what's a typical day for Doug Williamson out here? I mean, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. I came by, you were riding one horse, 12 to 15 head every day. So you're riding them about a half hour, 45 minutes each yeah, day? Whatever, whatever it takes, yeah. 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 Mostly just 20 to 30 minutes. You know, I got cutting horses and I got reining horses and and uh, the cow horses take a little more time ordinarily. One day I'll work them on cows, the next day I'll work them in the reining. So it isn't all that big a deal either. And if they do really well, hell, we're not out there five minutes. So as soon as they do something right, they, yeah. they're... We, we pat them and go to the... But we ride them every day. That's where everybody kind of misses it. It takes that everyday deal to get them to, to perform for you. And what I try to do is try to get them to have that mental pressure so high that whatever you ask me to do, I'll do for you. I'll kill myself for you. Right. And they do that for me. 
They don't pin their ears. They don't do anything except do their job hard and gritty. How do you develop that? Well, by not taxing them out to where they're so tired they don't want to do it anymore. Got it. Okay. That's why I, why I, I stress when a horse is turning around really fast, why would you want to turn him around anymore? Right. He knows how to do it. So why would you just keep drilling and drilling and drilling? Because but it got, it's a plus half or a plus one turnaround. Why would you want any more than that? Right. I don't even go there anymore if I know that that horse is, is good at his job in that particular part. The lead changes and the fast circles. And when I come around and what I do is I say E to them. I don't say whoa. I just slur the E at them and they come back to a pleasure loop without me pulling on the round rings. There's a lot of people that are want them all framed up really good and they're getting to where they're judging my way now better than they do the other way. In what way is that? By having them so contained in the reining part. Uh-huh. Because they're finding out that containment is okay maybe in the reining, but when they are after a cow, they're waiting for you to tell them how to work a cow instead of, and you can't tell them quick enough. You can't tell them well enough right. to turn the cow on the fence, and so they'll miss the cow because they're not cow horses anymore. They're just, they're just reining horses. My horses, I, once I start down that fence, it's, that's your job. It's up to you now. Do you transfer the responsibility to them at All that point? The that's way. what makes rain cow horse so it's such a difficult competition, right? It is, because a lot of guys like to try to think that they want to read the cow instead of letting the horse read it. And I hope they keep doing it, because it just lets me win more money. <laughs> yeah, win that much more. <laughs> They're, they're doing a documentary called Down the Fence. Down and the Fence. You, you were featured in I am that in as yeah. far I, as the I'm in it, yeah. yeah. Yep, it's pretty fun. How was that experience? Well, it was good. Uh, I didn't think I was very good at it, but they said I was great, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was fun. You know, we had, a, we had a, a tall thing that we had up, and I would run and slide underneath of it. To, and they, I was spinning underneath this. Under, underneath this deal, and uh, and then they had one of those. Uh, they had a camera in a in a plane. Uh, what do you call this? Uh, like a helicopters? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Was it like a little drone? A drone. Yeah, yeah that's what it was. A drone. And uh, oh my god, that was, that was fun. <laughs> and so they just followed me around, doing what I was doing, and spinning, and stopping, and doing. Awesome! That. Oh man! And then the crazy guys, they said they want really a good stopping picture. And they wanted to slide with a lot of dust blowing up. So I says, okay. Well, I started in my alley. It's a 300-foot alley. So I'm running this horse going 35 miles an hour, and he's laying in the middle of this alley. I'm running right at him. And when I stop, I'm not much further from here to you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he slid like 25 or 30 feet. Oh, right? my. And slid right up to him. And then it was such, it was such a neat a picture and then all of a sudden, the dust started blowing up around me. Oh, wow. Oh, it's a gorgeous picture. Oh, man, I can't wait to see that. I just can't <laughs> wait to see that. So, I mean, it, it was a fun deal, yeah. And, and then they came by just before we took off to Fort Worth, and, and they stayed here for three days, and, what, and I interviewed. And then we got a guy that uh, is a famous kind of a actor in the movies, and he's going to narrate it. Oh, great. And so got to meet him. I forgot. His name was Ted Ted something. I forgot what his last name is. But uh, so he's going to narrate it, I guess. And so that's going to be fun. 
Each, each week I try to give my audience a little bit of something that they can take out to use on their right. their horses. Now, right. they're not going to be doing any of the big maneuvers that, that you have, but can you give me a um, some, some piece of advice that we can pass along to them that they can take out with their horse? And You know, uh, the one thing that is really important is uh, they have to be able to not pull on the rattle rams. They just can't argue with the rattle rams. What I do here is I... I take a bridle rein and I'll tie it to the back sense or I'll take it, take it to some place to where he has to turn his head and his face will be perpendicular to himself and tight enough to where he can give to it, but he can't get away from it. You know, he can't take it away. Right. They got to be able in the direction rein, like on a snaffle bit or a hackamore, they've got to give you the bridle reins. And we all need to learn how to ride better to get that to happen. Right. Because when you pull on a, on a bridle rein, everybody wants to use their inside leg to brace themselves to pull. You cannot pull. Use your lower body to pull on the bridle reins. If you do that, you're actually contradicting what you're trying to get to do the, the horse to do. Does that make sense? When I'm pulling on the right bridle rein and I'm stepping in the right stroke to try to, try to help myself pull that bridle rein, I'm blocking him at the same time. That's right, yeah. So I don't, I, you can't use your lower body to pull the bridle reins. Because ordinarily, most people that don't ride very well will do that unconsciously. They don't mean to, but they're blocking the horse from being able to turn. But a lot of people use that foot in that stirrup for leverage. For leverage. So they have to be built up a little bit better core then. Well, actually, you just need to. The one thing that I stress, really stress, is the bridle reins and a hackamore and a snaffle bit need to go to the opposite hip and be pulled towards the opposite hip. Not out, but needs to be pulled. The right bridle rein needs to be pulled in the direction of the left hip. Does that make sense? And, and the neck rein will go to the other one. So it plants the inside foot down to be able to walk around the, front, the hind foot. Think about always... Dragging your bridle range to the opposite hip. Okay. Everybody wants to bring their arm out to the outside, to the right too far or to the left too far. Right. And when you do that, when you pull the right bridle rein, it makes his front foot go where your hand is. And we want the inside front foot to come back underneath your stirrup. So in order for him to take this step back to turn around to, and the outside foot come around in front, he's got to pull that, he's got to pull that one back. And the only way to get that done is to take the bridle rein, the direction rein, to the opposite hip. Now you use the neck rein to bring him, and that will bring that foot right back. Great. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense, yeah. So that's one of the main things that I think that you have to do. Everybody likes to have their hands way out wide. Right. You'll notice that I hardly ever have my hands any wider than the swells. Yes. Yeah. Because I don't want I don't want my hand out there. I want it in here where I can bring it right straight to this opposite hip. And then, do you start with the snaffle and the hackamore? I, we start all our horses here in the hackamore. In the hackamore, I'm a hackamore man. I really like the hackamore. I, that horse right there before I had that picture, uh-huh. I tuned him up in the hackamore before I ever did. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. My wife, she got. She got mad at me one day. We were down here just at a schooling show, and I had three buckskin horses. 
and I put them all in the hacker one. One was eight, one was six, and one was four. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, she looked over there, what is he doing riding that horse with two hands? He's eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> And I was tutoring, I was schooling him in the hackamore. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I think a hackamore is a really a good tool if you know how to use it. Right. It's yeah. it's like a halter if you don't know how to use it. But I, I'd rather ride a horse in a hackamore than I would a snaffle. But but I've rode him in a hackamore for generations. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. So I'm maybe not the best hackamore, horse, hackamore man in the world, but I'm... Pretty close to it. <laughs> there you go. Good job. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your busy day to oh, join us. No problem. I, I needed the break. Well, the Doug Williamson. At age 12, he won $25,000 racing thoroughbreds. Can you imagine that? Mm. He is truly amazing. And he's still going strong at 75. Well, that'll do it for this show. Thanks to Doug Williamson for being on the show and sharing some of the great tips and the stories of his life with horses. You know, you can support the show in a number of different ways. The best way is by clicking on the Patreon button at woepodcast.com. We're trying to figure out this Patreon thing. Woe Podcast has been going on for five years now. We've done over 150 different shows. We've brought you some of the best in the horsemanship world. We've added a new level of support. A monthly contribution equivalent to a flake of hay. Just think about it, folks. For the cost of one flake of hay, you can support these two flakes. These two. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> I think it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can get episodes of The Woe Podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And now even iHeartRadio. If you go to iTunes, and the best thing you can do to help support the show is to write a review. Review, just like Yelp. Yes. Everybody loves it when you do a Yelp review. And, (laughs) you know, I'm not suggesting anything, but four stars would be a pretty nice little score for the old Woe Podcast. (laughs) That'd be a great score. But whatever you do, even if it's... A crappy review. We'll take it because <laughs> we want to grow. That's it. So <laughs> we would love to hear from you. All the links will, for this show will be in the show notes at wopodcast.com. Thanks for supporting the show once again and sharing it with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye bye, everybody. Hmm? Are we done? No. Oh.